Welcome to the Recording Drums Podcast with Blair Sinta. Today my guest is Jason McGurr. Jason is best known for his work with Death Cab for Cutie and Tegan and Sarah. I've been a fan of Jason's playing and his tones for a really long time, discovering Death Cab back from transatlanticism and uh, a, a real interesting point for me was the record plans and just listening to those drum tones back in the day when I was early in my recording career and definitely being influenced by those. Jason takes us through his setup at home, um, how he in he interacts with uh, producers and engineers in real time when he's doing sessions, and also uh, how he interacts with students from his home space. He also has some interesting insights from owning a commercial studio versus uh, owning a home recording setup. If you're into recording drums, please check out my course called Introduction to Recording Drums. It's available on my website, blairsinta.com. You can also get for free a guide to remote recording. This is a 10-point kind of reminder. It can be helpful for drummers, producers, and songwriters, and I think it's a pretty cool thing to, to take you through, uh, even if you're experienced at recording and have done this a lot, just some reminders to Talk to uh, whoever you're working with just so you get everything sorted at the beginning. All right, without further ado, let's dive into my interview with Jason McGurr. And I'm not sure what, what uh, whether we should start at, at like kind of current or, or the back, but like one of the things I'm curious about with you is, one, when you got into recording yourself, and two, since you've had the opportunity to work with so many great engineers – and you know that I'm like a fan of like not only your playing but your sonic thing, like especially with like plans when I before we knew each other, right? Like, like how much that working with those engineers all through like years making records helped you at home, you know, when you started getting into like doing your own thing. You know, very early on, some, you know, my being involved in bands and projects, they involved. A level of DIY just always did right no one has the resource well very few of us have the resources to like set foot in a multi-track recording studio <laughs> like Ocean Way or you know something like that when you get started so of course it's it starts with a boom box or you know a handheld Walkman or it transitions to a four track and then next thing you know you discover tape machines and reel to reel and you know quote quote the word vintage you know comes in you're like oh i'm gonna do this thing this routing and right you know i think i've always just tried to pay attention to whoever i'm working with unfortunately every i've always had a band member who's really been into recording so the first uh prog rock trio that i was in um to put out a couple records we started doing demos on a four track and that whole you know the tascam right you know uh i can't remember M mk4 what was it? i can't remember the model anyway the idea of I never you know, those. yeah yeah balancing tracks you know like recording mono and balancing and using left right and creating a multi-track device out of four tracks like getting eight basically left right. right doing mono recordings like that practice started really early on for me um like probably in high school and then uh after that we transitioned into being more of a real band and like got the, got our hands on a Tascam eight track and uh we're doing remote recordings you know doing weird shit like whatever desktop mics we could pick up from the 
from the, you know, um, value village or whatever, Goodwill, whatever we could find, RCA recording equipment, um, realistic stereo pieces running weird stereo spring verbs, you know, on, on tracks. Like that was all the creative early start, even though the fidelity at the time wasn't like it is today. It was like, how can we just make things sound cool? Um, and you and again, I would go ahead. Knobs. You were helping tweak knobs during that? or, or Yeah, you... like I still have this piece right here. Like I'll just, I don't know if we can focus on it. I'll try, but I, this piece, I like I keep this not only because I use it, but also as a reminder of Let me see. I can't move it. I might be able to see it. Can you see that? Yep. Yep. It's, yep. it's a realistic yep. sticker I have in front. It's called, it says Crappulator because that was what, that was what the singer called it. And it was just this weird springy reverb. And that was like my introduction into like affecting sound. Wow. And um, that kind of stuff has just always interested me. And so fast forward quite a bit to me joining Def Cab in 2002. When I joined the band, Chris Walla, um, who's no longer in the band, was way into engineering and recording. And he had been at the helm engineering all the records um, from the beginning. And so being able to have a bandmate that you could hang out with both in the studio and out of the studio and nerd out about recording equipment was, was super helpful. And I would say that his influence early on is when I is who I can point the finger at to blame for this black hole that I'm in now, which is, you know, <laughs> the amount of outboard that I have and, you know, my, my fetish with compressors and, and different colors of pre's. And so really it stemmed from having a bandmate that was in a recording band. And again, that was at a time when, you know, indie rock was very much what it, what it's labeled independent. You know, you had to do everything yourself. There wasn't big budgets. Um, so I just paid a lot of attention and that snowballed into my little studio turning into a bigger studio, turning into investing in a commercial space, right. getting a console, you know, having a, a commercial studio, paying engineers, paying studio managers. Right. And then eventually I just pulled back and I was like, you know what, I just want to have my own place at home and not worry about trying to run a commercial space. Right. But that it's, I would say that it started in, the real seriousness started in like 2002. So we're almost at 20 years now of me right. Right. investing my time, energy, and money into recording. So I have like 19 questions based on that synopsis of that right now. <laughs> <laughs> All right, go. Um, so Chris was helpful with like the outboard stuff and microphones and things like that. How about your, your choices of drum choices and tuning choices? And things like that. What did you do? You feel like you had a pretty good handle on that stuff, or was it really like a constant back and forth where he heard certain things and he helped you focus in on that stuff, or was that really mainly coming from you? Like, like uh, it, it was, it was, it was both of us, and it was uh, other people on the outside. Like Greg Keplinger um, was always a big influence on me because of his just outside the box thinking when it came to not only making drums, making metal percussion, but you know, the idea of, of, of a, a real a sound with a real personality, 
you know, whether that was one drum or one cymbal. And he told me one point in time, he's like, oh man, you ever, you ever put a sheet over your bass drum head? And I was like, what? And he was like, yeah, guys used to take like bed sheets and they'd put them over the front bass drum head and then put the bass drum hoop on top of that. So it was like fabric over the head just slows the sound down, makes it all round and woolly. You're nodding like you haven't even tried this one. Not, and, not exactly that, no, yeah. And so like, uh, you know, the, on the first album uh, that I made with Death Cab, Transatlanticism, um, it was in, we were recording in the fall of 2002, came out in 2003. Um, the song Lightness on that record uh, has that uh, Rogers 20 inch bass drum, um, with the it was actually the batter head that i had this piece of like gold fabric not a sheet but a piece of fabric that i put on the outside of the batter head with the hoop on it to hold it on the wood hoop and it has a real specific tone right and uh on top of that there were um greg had just made me these um i'm sorry it wasn't lightness it was death of an interior decorator Lightness was a different drum treatment, but on top of that, Greg had made me these one stainless steel and one brass hi-hat. And we took a desktop mic, because this was Chris's idea, and we put it inside the hi-hats and closed the hi-hats down on it. And so right there, you've got like the most, you know, if you walked into a music store and you saw a drum set with a sheet over a bass drum and some weird hand-hammered hi-hats that were this big, with a cable sticking out from a desktop mic, you'd be like, wow, that's not really what I think thought of for- Yeah, you would run, yeah. like <laughs> No, no, you wouldn't. You'd be like, man, this is cool. I'm here, I'm in, let's go. But uh, I mean, it was, a, it was a collaborative effort is what I'm trying to say, as I was always into, from the very beginning, sitting down and trying to play something that I'd never heard before. And I mean, like sonically more than right. um, more than like rud like rudiments or, you know, like a groove. I mean, factor that in as well. But <clears throat> I was into weird treated sounds. And again, even further, this dates back to finding, you know, the realistic crappy letter right. and blowing sounds up, distorting them, hitting tape hard. And to me, that was always more interesting than a super clean drum sound. And it affected how I played. Right? It, it affected the groove. But uh Right. I think that I had a lot of ideas and so did Chris and we were never afraid to detune lugs. You know, if the tension rod was on the floor because of rim shots were too hard, we'd be like, leave it, don't touch it, don't pick it up. Right. You know, sort of the theory of golf, like hit the ball where it lays, you know. Yep. I think the drums, uh, there's a lot, of, lot to be discovered in that same way. I think it's amazing that it often takes, I mean, that was, I mean, the irony of this is like my my influence for that was Zach, who is now your bandmate. Uh, yeah. was once my bandmate. Uh, it often takes a, someone who is a manipulator of sounds, whether it's a keyboard player or a guitar player or an engineer. At least for me, it was to go like, no, 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 let's we're gonna do this because you know I think as drummers we study we study rudiments, we study grooves, and we study yeah. drummers. And to, for somebody to go to get you to start to think, not so much like a drummer, but as a sonic experimenter, uh, it's it's an interesting thing to me. You know that there there's somebody that usually heavies influences somebody like us like so heavily to do that, and 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 the 
also greg who you know was we've hung out to get together with greg before and he's like just an incredible dude and so unique the fact that you had man both those guys just like right there for you yeah it's like amazing yeah no you're you're right i mean it was uh and thankfully i was in a town and a place in a situation where there wasn't like some anr rep saying oh no no no. this is this is what everybody's doing and this is what you have to do right this is the template instead it was like greg was like you know fuck that you know or chris was like let's break it like i found this piece of gear on ebay and um it makes a really cool sound when i drop it on the floor you know like especially when the bass drum is played so i i think that yeah you're right it takes somebody to kind of pull back the curtain and say check out this view and then what happens after that is like i got really into it and then it's sort of the tides turn to where i feel like i in in working with other people and even with chris or other producers with death cab started to make suggestions about drum treatments and found sounds and like i mean the very first piece of metal i ever got from greg was the uh, there's always a section of the snare drum from rolling the shells that gets cut. It's like an overlap before they weld. Yep. And that rounded piece of steel or brass or whatever I would put on top of my toms mm-hmm. and it had this crazy wobbly phase type thing. And it it's on the earliest records I ever made okay. as, as part of my sound. And that was me. That wasn't Chris, but I guess I've always been an adventurer in that way. But yeah, nowadays... I really um, enjoy that I'm in a place where people just trust me to just deliver files or sounds or, you know, drum stems that are more creative and not just straight, narrow, raw tracks with zero treatment at all. I mean, I provide both, but it's, it's nice when people trust you well enough to just go for that, you know? Right. And it's kind of the ir- ir- irony of like, um, you know, had you guys been in you know, let's say one of these top dollar studios in LA back in that time that no one would, you know, let Chris overdrive things or you, you know, things or whatever that it just wouldn't happen, you know? Yeah. So the fact that like, there was no one, like you said, there's no A&R looking over your shoulder, but, but also there's, there was no like money factor or outside influence or saying that you can't do that, you know? And you guys could just run with your ideas. Yeah, we very fortunate to have, you know, spent the last 20 plus years in a band that started on an independent label that had that artistic freedom. Yeah. And even even when Death Cab went from an indie label to Atlantic Records, we had established ourselves enough that there was never any A&R people in the studio. There was, you know, the, the feedback from the studio was or from the label is always just more of a suggestion about maybe uh, edit for song length for a radio track or whatever. But in terms of artistic endeavors and approach and, uh, but I mean, we're in that world now too, right? Like there are so many records out there that are all over the map sonically and it's interesting as hell, you know, like I love listening to electronic records and, um, what what kids are doing these days manipulating sounds uh, you can always tell though when someone is really into you know like say a sean everett like like doing it on an organic level versus just plug-in based right 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 
that's i mean i think that's probably my main influence these these days too is some kind of weird hybrid either pure electronic or some weird hybrid electronic electronic thing and i'm like well could i do that acoustically like what is that how right that's the first thought yeah yeah uh i think bj burton is doing some really interesting production and it seems like there's a lot of millennials that are that want your raw tracks just so they could do that so they can create like this crazy weird you know landscape change but right uh i i'm like i said i'm i'm lucky that i have the time and the energy and equipment to be able to experiment on my own end and not just give up or or go to a studio like man if i think about it if you didn't have your own place and like you just subjected yourself like you get this one kit and this one sound you go somewhere else and that's it this is all i have to offer right this is the one set of clothes i have <laughs> like that would be that would be that would be boring after a while i would think um so did, when you when you started investing in gear were you a you know did you start small and just start with four mics or whatever or were you kind of like oh this these are the things i need because i kind of know what i'm doing like oh yeah i mean i started with like an mbox and a right um you know on a, a 57 and whatever maybe a kick mic of some brand but it I, makes I, me I, I don't mean the task cam days i meant when you decided to get your own space when i decided to get my own space i i invested a lot more uh into a multi-track you know like 32 io okay. um console like everything well the console was actually in my first commercial studio was a um console that belonged to uh chris that i resurrected so chris walla had a console in a storage space and it wasn't really working and i was like tell you what let's you and i go have these on this for parts and then i'll pay the techs and i want to get this thing up and running and put it in my studio and it was the same board that was in Zach Ray's studio. It was a quad eight. And uh, we parted out another board. I found a board that used to belong to Soundgarden. That was the same console that we parted out to spec it and make it legit. But yeah, for the commercial studio, I had to have multiple IO, multiple outboard pre's, as well as the console compressors. I had to invest in cabling. I had to do, it was just kind of a gulp. You know, I went from an eight track I went from a two track to a four track to an eight track to a 32 track studio with pro tools and logic. And of course, because I wanted to please everybody, I had that, you know, when someone, when an engineer or producer had said, you know, it'd be really great if you had like, right. Of course I would go buy that. So next thing you know, I've got way more equipment than I need. Um, but it was also fun. It was my model train <laughs> that I, that I also got to use. So I'm not sure I realized, maybe I just don't remember that you had a commercial place because that was that was in the same space that Chamberlain was in, right? No, you're you might be getting uh, you mean that that Matt's in currently? No, no, no. I mean up there by you in Seattle. Probably. No, Matt, not, no, the only Matt Chamberlain death cab um, um, intersection is that Ben had had created a space when he lived in L.A and uh, moved shortly after, and then Matt moved into that space, and that's where he is right now. Okay, okay, that, okay I'm, I'm, I'm off. But, so I'm not sure, but, I, guess I don't, re, re, I didn't know that you ran a commercial space, and you were having bands come in? Yep, it was only open for three years. Um, 
because I was renting a space and I tried to buy the building and it would have had to been subdivided as part of a larger property and the landlord didn't want to do that. But we went down the path and it was, I would, might still be there if I own that building. The other thing is when I built that space in 2007, it was just my wife and I, no kids yet. And we lived in Seattle and we eventually had one kid and then had a second kid and moved a hundred miles north. And I was still, you know, running this commercial studio, but not because I had a studio manager, two engineers and an accountant. Okay. And if the studio wasn't booked 20 days a month, then it, it was, it was a break even, you know, at best, even at 20 days a month because of Seattle rent. And it was just ridiculous. I think I went there one day in between tours because obviously I was on tour a lot and not using my own commercial space, right? It was like a, a glorified storage facility that made some great records. Right. Death Cab and Tegan and Sarah, we both made records there. Um, and Annie Clark from St. Vincent wrote a part of a record there. I mean, it, it was used by a lot of people that would come through town as well as local Seattle bands. But anyway, I had moved to Bellingham, had a family, started buying a whole nother studio, like, wow. so, so that I could record at home. Yep. And then next thing I knew, I was like doing the math of like how many distressors I had. And I was like, this is dumb because I wasn't going to go pull like equipment from Seattle to bring it up north. Of course. And so that epiphany as well as, um, you know, being so far away and having to pay everybody. Um, and I think at that point in time, Chris wanted his console back to build his own studio in seattle and i was like well here we are right do i buy a new console or a vintage console to continue this path or do i just stick with my own space right. and find someone else to take over the lease and the equipment and they, and they did and that's what we did so and it was how, a great thing but that's a total dedication to have a commercial studio right and how often were you in there actually doing drum tracks your drum tracks for other artists like maybe twice maybe twice yeah wow <laughs> really i did everything at home yeah you know um and i yeah i loved it i loved the space but you know I, I wish i could say money if money were no object i would still have it but it it just it was too much to keep it running um and also there's part of me that really enjoys walking into a space and i'm sure you can agree with this when i walk in this space I open up, you know, logic and open a template and everything is always patched in and ready to go. And if the lightning strikes, I'm ready to go. Going into a commercial studio, I had to reset every time and tear it down. Yeah. And I didn't want to do that. So um, it's nice to have your own space. But like I said, we probably made, there was probably close to 60 records recorded in that space. Um, over the course of three years okay. had a slow start but some some good records came out of there wow. but i mean i uh like i said ha i think having your own space at least the size that i have now and knowing what i know about gear like i've, I've pared it down to a good amount of outboard and the right amount of plugins and not op not having option anxiety you know except for maybe you know the drum problem you and I both have. <laughs> I, I've I've been working on that, but yeah, <laughs> yeah. 
been working on trying to remedy that issue, <laughs> which is not easy these days. Nobody wants to buy drums right now, I'm finding. It's kind of strange. Yeah, because everybody wants sample libraries. Yeah, yeah. Anyway, different issue, different topic. <laughs> uh, um, so in your space right there, I'm seeing a stone wall. Is that actually a stone wall behind you? Yeah. So one of the benefits of building a studio, a commercial studio, is you learn a lot <laughs> about uh, building materials, surfaces, floors, um, sympathetic vibrations, standing waves, acoustic treatments, design. So I wanted a room in my house that was first and foremost easy to sell. Like I didn't, I didn't want like a standard home. And then all of a sudden, what are all these angled walls? And like, why, why is this an asymmetrical room? It's right. hard to sell to the real estate agent. So I, I learned that like, just by diffusing surfaces with different materials, obviously um, you can make a more even flat space. So this is, this whole wall is a foundation wall, believe it or not. So it's concrete, but then it's faced with Eldorado stone to break up the, obviously um, the reflections of symbols and those fast transient. Um, and the whole ceiling is treated as well with a combination of diffusers, trap fusers, pyramids, um, right. all the way down. Anyway, um, I tried to come up with a space that was as flat as even as possible. This is not a symmetrical room by any means, but I've learned over the years to use it as a bit of a Sarmi knife. Um, the it has some length to it so i can get further away with microphones it also has a separate um boiler room like a utility room that i can open up and throw a ribbon mic in and totally get the stairwell i mean whether you're at blackbird studio b or you know you're you're somewhere else where there's an, an a reverb chamber i can dial in those mics so typically i have i have two kits one is a a, a kit with multiple like 12 mics on it and then I've got a smaller mono kit with four mics on it. And then they each share this, what I call boiler room microphone for room ambience for me to dial in. And then I also have an electronic kit, but everything is just kind of set up and in the line, always patched in, always mic'd up, ready to go. So all I got to do is sit down and hit R, basically. And my jealousy factor just went up by like 100. <laughs> I'm not trying to brag. I'm sorry. I'm just. Uh, it's not bragging. It's it's uh, to me. It's like you know what you're doing, and you knew what to do when you built the space. To me, that's that's what that sounds like. You know. Well, look. The the first space I had was, the very first space I had was in 1995, and we we called it. It was a band space with a small little four track in it, and we called it the Awesome Possum because this was a room inside of a room built in a garage and there was a one like a maybe an eight inch space one foot space all the way around the perimeter and at some point in time a possum crawled in there and died so we had to smell this dead possum uh with burning as much incense as we could to get over it and opening fan but we could we had to have the door closed because the neighbors complain about noise so look dude i didn't start here i know <laughs> i mean the awesome possum evolved into the the shed in seattle that was maybe eight by 10 right. and then yeah blew up into the commercial studio and then we reduced down to the size but in this day and age man this is like a life raft right like i to have a space where i can come work with if someone sends me a text or email says 
sorry, last minute request. Can you do these tracks by the end of the day? If I'm home, the answer is yes. Yeah. And that's compared to having to find a studio or book time or go anywhere or get on a plane or any of that shit. Like I've recorded more in here in the past year and a half during this pandemic than I have in the past 10 years because it's been available. Right. When you, so when you moved in, when you, sorry, not when you moved in, when you had the space built with that particular wall and the other walls in the room, did you put, did you kind of know where the kit was going to go? Or did you, did you experiment where like sound best here? You know what I mean? I, I, I had to do some experimenting because the room, uh, one wall is all dirt, like solid foundation. Okay. Another wall is mostly dirt, but then slopes down. Uh -huh. This wall to my right is 16 inches thick with THX quiet rock, uh, uh with staggered studs. That far wall is the same thing and the lid is floated. Each one of these surfaces, depending on what's on the other side, has a different sympathetic vibration, okay? Right. The other thing is the closer you are to a foundation or dirt, the deader your drums are. Right. So I had to, yes, move my drums around the room because if I, if I played closer to this corner where there's hollowness on the other side, it affected my drum sound. If I played more in this corner, which is where I've settled, uh, everything was, there was no sympathetic vibration. Like the isolated sounds were really, really good. So if I solo just my kick drum, that I heard a super focused note. Whereas if I set up on the on the other side, closer to a, a, a vibrating wall, yeah. my toms would resonate when I hit the bass drum. Um, and I had to also like measure distances from the corners because I'm set up kind of in a corner mm -hmm. to have equal distance from my overheads to the center of my snare drum, to the sides of the walls. So my imaging was actually what it needed to be. Right. So yeah, all that being said, man, if you can't play, none of that matters. <laughs> so <laughs> it's like, right, we could, we could wax on and off about like the importance of acoustic design and treatment and mic placement, but it doesn't matter if you don't feel good as a drummer. So. Right, that is true, but that's not what we're here for right now. We're here to right. we're here to get nitty and gritty, and we're letting other people deal with those. Other yeah, <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, we could talk for hours, but this is how this is how nitty and gritty and nerdy I get. Yeah. So, in terms of just being obsessed with having things sound in phase, I mean, it's amazing to me how many drummers don't hear that or consider that, um, especially young, you know, recording drummers who just get their first interface and have full microphones, they'll, they'll send me something like in a lesson, be like, how am I doing? I'm like, let's listen to it together. And I, I um, show them on actually like a spectral analyzer the difference between when things are in and out of phase and let them hear that. And then we make some adjustments with microphones and then all of a sudden they realize their drum sound has improved. But like, I will go through all of, I was doing this earlier today because I was setting up my patch fade differently. I go through all of my outboard gear, um, plugins, you don't need to worry about it so much, but all of my compressors are uh, being, I'm testing them with, a, with an oscillator to make sure that the levels that I'm hitting are exactly the same yeah. and, and checking phase and mics with tape measures. It just, it's, it just saves me time on the, on the back end when I deliver tracks to somebody, you know, knowing that they're going to sound good, but and then there's that awful feeling when you find that they're out of balance that you now have to take them to a shop and wait for a month to get them back. <laughs> and you could do that where you live. I can't do that here. Um, 
but I, you know, yesterday I came in here and like my, my APIs that I normally use for my overheads, like they just went, they've, it's been 20 years since I had to do anything to them, but like now it's like, I'm like, oh shit, I have to make do now for the next three weeks without, you know. <sighs> Man. Um, are they 500 or 3124 or? Uh, the, the Brett Averill 312. So that. Oh yeah. Yeah. Those are great. I mean, they've been so solid, you know. Yeah. When Brent is he still making gear? Well, it's a, it's a BAE now. Right, right, right. I've yeah. got some of their ten seventy threes. Yeah, yeah. So, but I just talked to them this morning. They're you know they'll get in there and they'll get on it. So nice. But you know what? Yeah, you got it's you like, got to have a good tech. I know, I know. It's tricky when you get in. You're like, oh man, that thing is all of a sudden that's not working. That's my option that I usually go for for this. That's going to limit me. It's How about of, this? How about when you when you've just tracked something you're really proud of and you're you're you know exporting files and creating stems and you you solo something and you hear like a bad cable and it's unfucking usable like I did I did that the other day I sent a track to somebody and I was like oh my god the rack tom every time I hit the bass drum the cable rattles and I was so pissed that I didn't pick up on it until it was soloed yeah but because i'm because i'm i've had to do this because we've had to make do i just went in and you know doubled the track and replaced it with a joey warnker rack tom from the loop loft and adjusted the <laughs> velocity and uh between that sample support and the room mics you'd never know perfect 911 man Tricks of the okay, trade. That's why people will listen to this. They just are like, oh, okay, cool. You know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I know. It's like as soon as you show people that, they're like, wait, what? Yeah. What you could do what? Um, so yeah. I, Thankfully, I've had a lot of friends and engineers who have helped me out with tips over the years on how to uh, yeah. how to fix my how to fix my car. I remember back um in my earlier days in my first studio in Burbank when I didn't know how to use my 160s properly, and I just thought, "Oh, I'm gonna put it here." And I don't. I guess somehow I didn't check it, and the, it was it was hitting so fast that there was basically no sound. <laughs> yeah. I finished the track. I was like, "Oh, this," you know. I soloed it, and I was like, "Wait, what?" There's, you know, it was it was so fast. It was just like it was just like a tick, you know. <laughs> Transient designer attack. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, oh, it's fun, man. I the learning curve is real, isn't it? Like, yeah, and and never, it, you know, especially with microphones. That's the fun thing, you know. Like, I'm really more on the hunt for. Well, I don't buy much gear at this point, but I'm really on the hunt for more like crappy microphones just for care. Yeah, you know. Um, no, I'm. I worked with I'm him with here, you. Uh, in the past few weeks, and he had some American microphones. The brand is American, like Salt Shaker. Oh yeah, yeah. No, you said with Jakir. Is that what you said? No, no, no. Uh, uh, uh. I said American Salt Shaker. Oh. I, oh, I said an engineer, not Jakir. Oh, yeah. I see. Yeah. Got it. Yeah. Yeah. No, I'm with you. I I think that um, it's way more interesting to. I mean, geez, you could you could go. The chances, you know, when it comes to rolling the dice of going and picking up some cheap ass weird looking like at a vintage shop or wherever you can find it yeah. um and just sending it through a cool colorful compressor plug-in like the chances of finding a sound that inspires you and in the arts you're working with mm -hmm. are far greater than they ever used to be 
just because people are willing and wanting to hear that stuff. I remember investing in a whole bunch of really nice drums at one point in time and then going the complete opposite way. Like, what are the cheapest, crappiest drums I can find? Yeah. Because, yeah, once you've got the ear for it, you know how to make things sound good. I also find that, like, uh, often I buy a, whether it's a, a piece of percussion or gear or snare or mic, that all of a sudden that thing becomes the thing that you thought like, how did I live without this? Because all of a sudden you're using it for everything. You're so inspired by it. But when you when you do something with it, but then you go like, I, I could have never done this had I not found this piece of gear, you know? <laughs> totally. Like, right? Your go-to. Like, yeah. What, yeah, where's my piece? Yeah. yeah. I have a few of those pieces around here. Um, and, you know, what's funny is that I don't even know how I came by them. Like, they just, someone left them behind at the studio or... I picked up some sleigh bells on tour and little did I know they would be on everything I ever did that needed sleigh bells, you know, just as like, I was bored that day on tour. I was like, Oh, I'll buy these. Right. right. In fact, there's a Keplinger thing that I bought at revival drum probably almost 10 years ago. And it's, it's a sheet. It's a metal sheet about, you know, a foot long and a six inches wide. And it's got a couple rings just on the side. And it was like 45 bucks. And I remember I, I was like, this is amazing. And I, I had to take it back to the tour bus. Uh, I might've even seen you on that trip actually the day before, but uh, <laughs> I brought it back to the tour bus and I you got it taxi. And my bandmates were like, what the fuck is that thing, dude? I was like, this is awesome. Look, check it out. And they're like, they're like that. Like, okay, dude, whatever, man. I have gotten more use out of that thing. Right. I wouldn't believe it. Yeah. I look uh, just for fun, I'm going to walk 15 feet away and grab this bag that is just Greg's earliest metal okay. inventions, just to show you like what I have to reach for. I'll be right back, Omar. I'll play some Jeopardy music during this time. So yeah, the uh, the percussion tracks that have happened because of Greg, whether it's one of these 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 big dudes, yep, 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 or check this out. This is crazy. Like, I don't know what that is. Wow, got a whole bunch of symbols. Um, but like. rivets uh-huh with a hole through it yep these metal pieces these are some of the original ones that i talked about these are all pieces of snare drum but man when you put them on a surface and play them uh -huh. when you put them on drums so cool whereas i have this really weird piece that looks like a World War One German army helmet or something. I swear to God, he was pulling car parts out. Yeah. Anyway, I've got these other weird pieces that he made to like mount on the side of floor toms and. Right. Yeah, man, it's all music. It's all in there. Um, I've been able to make some great, great tracks with the weirdest pieces of gear, and at the same time, I I will never not want to get behind right. a vintage scratch kit. Right. You know. Right. 
Zach, Zach used to make fun of me. He'd be go, oh, he would say, oh, here come the pots and pans. <laughs> yeah, but he loves that, you know? I know, but it was always like, oh, he was like, oh, here we go. <laughs> yeah. Was that all in pedestrian? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, yeah, whatever we were doing, you know, who knows, but pedestrian, any recordings. Yeah. Um, well, it, it definitely helps to have supportive bandmates um, or or other producers or engineers, because I, I've definitely been in situations where someone is just like, no, 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 we don't need that. We don't want to hear that at all. But usually that's because they haven't ever given it a shot. You know, they haven't realized what layering in some weird effect or, or piece of gear is going to, how that's going to affect the overall feel of the track. Yeah. So when you got up, I saw that you have a monitor right next to your kit back there. Is that, so, really, yeah. is that a separate so, computer or how are you running? So it? <laughs> this is how I work remotely. Okay. Um, I have my studio computer, which is just a Mac mini. Okay. Um, and like souped up in, in terms of RAM, it's enough for what I do. If I was mixing like 200 track projects, I would have something more powerful. It's fine for drum tracking. Right. Next to my drum set, I have another iMac that i use for zoom um uh whenever i'm teaching like drum students or if i'm working for someone else i allow them if i allow another engineer on like team viewer to yeah. control my studio computer in terms of the faders the solo and the mutes yeah. and then i mirror the screen so i have the identical screen so i can look at the arrangement of a song and then playback what they're hearing, what's piping out over Zoom is a separate monitor output from my Grace uh, that's going to an Apollo interface. So I've got, actually I've got this in two separate places. I've got the, a smaller kit, like a mono kit <clears throat> with another interface and my laptop where I do the exact same thing. So if you were an engineer right now, you would be able to not only share, but control my screen and right. hear the mix you want to hear right. coming from my stereo bus. And, if, and then I hear the exact same thing and I've got a talkback mic over by the kit <clears throat> as, as well as just a mute switch for that talkback when I'm actually tracking. Right. So it's a, it's a real collaborative way of working with people remotely. Um, so you're, and, you're not using audio movers, you're using TeamViewer? No, 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 TeamViewer is, so if I share too many screens, yeah, like the connection is not good. It affects both audio and visual performance. So I use Team Viewer to just do the remote desktop control on the studio computer. Gotcha. Audio is passing through Zoom. However, it's not just built-in mic, right? It's my stereo bus mix into Zoom. And, so and Zoom is carrying that sonically well enough for you? That's interesting. Well enough to go over a range. So once we get to a place where we feel like there's a good performance, then I broadcast listen to via audio movers into whoever's control room is referencing what's going on. Okay. But I, it sounds I fingered out some ninja stuff through Zoom audio. No, no, no. I hadn't. No, yeah. very early on, I was using a company called IPDTL. Mm -hmm. Are you familiar with that one? IPDTL is a is a broadcast platform that radio stations use, which actually broadcast in stereo where Zoom's in mono. Right. So IPDTL is a better sounding, you know, version of the broadcast, but 
if I got, if we got, if I jumped off the zoom on my iPad and went over there for you to experience what I'm talking about, I could show you not with the screen share thing necessarily, but on top of having that back station over there with the, with the, uh, with the iMac, um, I have a Roland video switcher. So I've got a side camera, an overhead camera, and a foot cam, right. which aids me with the teaching thing, but it's also good for the engineers so that we can, you know, air drum and, and work through parts together. And typically, like I said, the way that it works from start to finish is, is this. Get a call, get an email. Can you do this track? Yes, I can do the track. Send me the files. I want music stems, rhythm stems, however you break it out that's not too complicated. I load everything into a session and then I set it up and then I'll, I'll do some work before we get online. And once we get online, I'll be like, here's what I'm thinking. And I sit there and I play back on the track. Mm -hmm. And then once we come up with a good arrangement, then I send them, you know, I allow them to link in my screen yep. to my main studio computer. You can then move some stuff around. They can add a plugin. Like if somebody wants a soup, like a culture vulture, you know, on a mono reslo crotch mic, great, go for it. They can hear what that sounds like on their end. If they really want to know what it sounds like, we click over to audio movers. But yeah. by using Zoom and TeamViewer and audio movers, you know, versus just one platform, uh, it, things don't get so jammed up with latency and transmission in general. And I can, like I said, move back and forth between two different kits. But it's really great because often when you're working remote, people don't know what their options are, what they're missing, you know? So to be able to sit at a kit, if I was an engineer and you were tracking right now and, you know, I want to know what, what a mic sounds like if you open up that door behind you and like I move the fader up, like in real time, how that affects the track, how everything sits, that's a super bonus, right? So I've tried to create all that at home here for other people. And what's the percentage of you actually working in real time with engineers slash producers versus you kind of doing it on your own and sending off an MP3 and just getting the okay? Um, this is usually how it works is I, I get, I get files, I get started. I, I get familiar with it. If I have questions, if there's like a, uh, like, man, I'm stumped. Like, is this halftime? Is it cut time? Like I'll jump online with somebody right away before I put in the time and we'll work through an arrangement. Um, sometimes I'll present what I think a song needs, mm -hmm. send that first ref and we'll listen to it with maybe the producer and the artist or something like that. Um, like the songwriter and the, the producer engineer on the other end, we'll all listen to it together in real time while I'm sitting behind the kit. I'm not playing, I'm just listening right. and they'll stop you know, and say, what if you went to the ride right. in, in verse two instead of the, the hats again? Right. And then I'll just, because the session is loaded and ready to go, then I play the same thing. So what they're hearing is basically the same thing because I haven't changed the sounds. I haven't changed anything I'm doing, right. but they get real-time feedback. Right. Once, you know, and I might, I might actually record that in real time because we may capture it or It'll just be like, make, make notes, put a new marker in there, go to hat. And then um, I say, I'll send you a new ref in an hour or whatever. Cause often after I track, I would prefer to track on my own without people staring at me, right. yeah. <laughs> but some people really want to be there to, to watch you go through your thing. So I've done this a lot with my bandmates as well. So like, 
Ben, Ben will have like a, an idea for a drum part and, and say, Hey, could we jump online and work it out? Okay. And he'll, he'll just watch me as if we're in a practice space, work through the piece. Right. And that may take whatever, a few passes through the song. And I'm like, cool, I'll work on it and send you ref in an hour. And then, like I said, then I have the time. Once we have the arrangement and the sounds, yeah. then I might go through and like really comb over it and adjust transients and, you know, maybe do a few edits here and there. Yeah. Um, but that being said, I don't, I don't ever like, it's not like the process of me hiding or flexing or yeah. beat detecting the shit out of myself. It's just getting things to where I feel like an engineer or a producer can take the files, load them into their computer and not have to spend any time on it. Yeah. And those, those will be raw files, effects files, like stuff that I print and a drum stem. That's typically what's in every folder for a track. I, I would assume, wait, do you send raw files and affected files all the time? Yeah, separate. I do, yeah, because I, I even though what I think is the is a cool sound, like if I'm gonna hit this modular, you know, overstay or modular channel and just just crush the, you know, the gain and and filter on it, like maybe I think that's cool, but in the context of what someone else is mixing, it might be unusable. So I think it might have even been Zach that said first, like, can you just send me raw files? Because obviously he's got a killer studio in his own outboard. So yeah, raw tracks, effects. Well, what you're, you're kind of referencing is super affected something. So but will you send actually un, un-EQ'd rack tom, un-EQ'd floor tom, un-EQ'd? Okay. Yep, I do. Uh, because uh, it sounds good. I mean, I'm not... I'm not sending crappy drum sounds. Right, of course, yeah. And, unless they're crappy by design or, right. or mic placement. I guess, we'll, but, okay, so wait, sorry, I'm going to piggyback on that. But you're going through your board and you're EQing there first. There are some mics that are being printed through outboard. Right. So like I've got a Reslo um, mic out in front of the kit about the same level as the floor tom rim and the snare drum rim pointed splitting the middle of the toms so it's stereo it's a mono mic right but the imaging is it's right up the middle so that one mic is going through um my quad eight with some eq on the channel strip because the low end sounds amazing on that top is a little rolled off and then from that i'm going into a complex vocal stressor which has an additional eq and the, the badass compressor on one, one path, right? That is being printed and that mic is what it is. There is no raw version of that that somebody's getting. Um, but majority like kick, snare, there's a little bit of compression that I'm hitting on my kick in, yeah. but then there's a FET 47 that's like, it's just a 47 in front of the bass drum. And um, snare top, is going through a 1073 and there's a little eq on that but i mean to me my choices of eq um or compression when i'm printing stuff are not heavy-handed they're like all right this is what's best for this room and this drum given the height of my ceiling or whatever sympathetic you know like, like in my room there's a there's a big buildup at 70 hertz and as long as i try and uh, i try and eq this room as best as possible it's just going to be there so I might compensate that by ducking it a little with a narrow cue on the console or as a 
as a plug-in. Right. Getting too nerdy yet? No, not for me. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So I guess, okay. You definitely answered my question. I guess what I was like, mostly what I do is I'm going through my outboard gear. I'm EQing kick and snare and I'm making those EQ choices that are obviously printed into pro tools. And then sometimes I will EQ after depending on if it needs to be carved, depending on the type of tune type of whether it's supernatural or it's like an eighties thing and it really needs to be flexed. Um, I do both and I send both. Yeah. That, I guess that's the question I was, I was that you, that you did answer, but you know, I like, if I'm going to add a gated reverb, just to say, Hey, look, this is how hand sound, I will send that separately so they can make their own choices on those. But as far as EQ and things like that, if I'm going to go for like that Phil Collins thing, I'm going to make the Tom super bright and you know, I guess I have options, but I'll usually send them just the printed stuff and be like, yeah, here it is. If you don't like it, cool. I'm cool to send the raw stuff. You know what I mean? I give them, a, you know, I let as them in, as in a request, you're going to, you're going to send what you feel is best. And then if they request something different, you'll come back with it. Exactly. See, I've done it. I guess I've done it enough that it's, I just, I mean, I'm right here. It's not hard. Like exporting raw files takes nothing. Right. Right. Time-wise. And okay. I don't make, I don't make the, I don't make a lot of EQ decisions. To me, I want to record the best drum sound possible, which yep. is determined by drum choice, yep. heads, tuning, yep. microphone choice. Like for instance, I, I had Cole, you know, 4038s, a pair of them, and they just weren't very flattering in this room. Yep. And it turns out that the Reslo or the R88 was the better choice for this room. Right. And, um, I it, as is it sounds great and placement and distance from the kit like everything all that that is my EQ that is my compression like placing those microphones and then also just deciding like this is my drum sound yeah right yeah. um but I like I said I, I'm never very heavy-handed so it's easy once I have raw files everything at unity all my mic levels are set for how I typically play and even if I play really quiet if I'm doing one of those super quiet you know, there's a quesadilla or a big fat snare drum and I'm barely playing the snare top. I usually don't change the output or the input of the 1073. I will make up for that with like a Spectrasonics 610 or something. I'll, I'll give it some more gain, but like be cognizant of the noise floor. Yeah. So I might put like a gate on something and print something or put it in the raw files and call that the raw file so that there's not as much noise floor because I'm playing quieter as he pushes up his glasses i really don't know what i'm doing though i'm just all all of it's just an experiment right dude i'm learning shit i love it this is exactly why i wanted to do this because it's like you know it would it would really take me to come over there and go like hey dude can i can i come hang out at your space and see what you (laughs) like that's never gonna fucking happen you know what i mean (laughs) we're a little ways away from each other yeah i mean Um, the, the 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 few of these that I've done so far, it's like it's like oh wow, that's amazing to see like your process, you know, and like the other guys I've talked to, you know. Well, look, I mean, it, at the same time, I come, I walk in this room some days, and like, I don't want any of this gear. I want a light bulb over a drum set, and I just want to focus on playing. Yeah, you know, 
I think that gets tricky too. Sometimes I, I do the same thing. I, I have to, when I walk in my room and some days I'm just like, I just want to like practice or play yeah. drums and get better and not get confused on why I'm out here. And that's hard to turn when you're looking at all this stuff, it's hard to turn it off. Just, just go like, I know. <laughs> I'm literally here to like, you know, work on a, a lick or a groove or whatever and not, and not muddy the waters. That's, that's, that's a tricky thing. Yeah. Yeah. And I think too, you and I have both been in the studio with, with engineers or producers that sadly aren't, they'll, they'll be unnamed, even though you probably know some of the people I'm talking about. We've been in the studio with people that are such tweakers, such knob turners that they don't listen to the performance. Right. They're not, they're not keyed into what's happening on the floor. Right. In terms of the, the magic or the group dynamic or this or that they're so concerned with like fucking with the eq or the compression or replacing a, a bass drum sound or a snare drum sound that they just miss it so i don't want i don't want to go down that path you know by my own hand like i don't want to get so obsessed with sounds that i i, I don't play i don't put in the time so if i had to choose between a two-hour window of you know tweaking or a two-hour window of playing or 15 minutes of tweaking and an hour and 45 of playing, I'm going to choose more playing than, than tweaking because I have tweaked. That's what mixing is for. That's when you can really sort of learn gear and sounds is like after you play. Yeah. Do it if, then. Yeah. To keep those. Um, yeah. Yeah. My, my big thing is when I have to go through, like today, like I have to go through these mic pre's and like, just unplug things and climb back there and i'm just like dreading it you know what i mean <laughs> it's just part of the part of the thing you know there could be an instagram page dedicated to um console backsides yeah like literally like what patch bays and like what <laughs> what it looks like yeah. i'm with you too anytime i got a repatch and i'm i got a headlamp on and i'm like back there dealing with all that stuff it yeah. just feels like a nightmare um which is why it's nice to have a space that you can walk into and just turn on the lights and go. Right. All so right. knock on wood, hopefully everything remains stable. I also try to have enough flavors and pieces that if, if you know, 20% of them goes down, it doesn't stop the whole recording process. That literally was what I was about to ask you. So how, and we'll, we'll wrap this up soon because I know you got to run. Yeah, I'm okay for time because I pushed back. My, we started earlier. Anyway. Um, how often are you changing mics? I mean, you already kind of answered this. You kind of do the Allen size thing with, with like your, your, your EQ is the mic and things like that. Are you, are you pretty interactive on like, okay, this is this drum sound. I'm going to, it's not just the drums you're changing out, just not just picking this kick and snare, but like, I'm going to change these microphones, you know, possibly every day for the sound that you need. I don't change the microphones. Okay. Hardly ever, unless I get something new that I want to use, because I have, uh, to me, a diverse, I mean, I'll, I'll just go down the list. My kick mics are uh, a D25 and a FET 47. Mm -hmm. At any point in time, I, I could swap out that D25 for a Beta 91. Right. Those three options, there's a kick drum in there, like there is. You just throw a different bass drum up if it's not what you're looking for. Right. The snare top is right now an M88. Yep. Sometimes it's a 57. Okay. Snare bottom is a 57. Yep. Hi-hat is a KM84. Vintage. Yep. Sounds great. 
overheads are the um, either a pair of KM84s or the Telefunken FET 60s because they're a little cleaner than the KM84. The KM84s in this room happen to be a little bit spitty. They're good if you're playing really quiet, but they're a bit too much, a little okay. too hashy. Uh, but the KM84, the FET 60s are great. There's also an R88 over the top of the kit, splitting down the middle of my overheads for an extra stereo image of ribbon over the top of the kit, so I could choose between condenser and ribbon. Okay. Then there's my Tom mics. I don't really care that much about, so they're just ATM25s, really focused, Tom easy. Mike. Yep. Um, and then there's a Reslo uh, out in front of the kit, which is that signal path I told you about that hits the quad A as well as the uh, vocal stressor EQ and compression. Okay. Then there's a ribbon mic a shiny box 25 feet away in a boiler room around the corner i can open or close the door i can move that mic inside the room it is my when the levee breaks vibe around the corner or when you, you gate that mic it's instant like ams non-linear robert palmer shit right, okay. away from the kit cool so between all those colors you can subtract you can add you can tweak infinitely any of those channels that's just one kit then the second kit, like I said, is the mono kit. More one overhead, one snare. It's a it's a TF forty seven Telefunken over the drums, a KM eighty four on the snare drum, um, and a buyer um, the M seventy, the new one they make. Okay. Just a cheap kick mic that sounds great. Okay. And then uh, inside the hi hats, I have a lapel mic, the sure, whatever that little tiny guy is that you clip your for, shirt you're going for a lot of character if you're going over there yeah and that and that mic because it's so isolated and so simple is really easy to take individual tracks and double or replace sounds and battery right cool so if i want to if that kit needs to have an 808 support for the bass drum done if it needs to have a clap lin clap on the snare drum or a tambourine added to the hi-hat mic it's so isolated because it's inside the hats right. done and then the boiler room mic right around the corner is all the room you want. So those five channels. So between those five and the 12 mic kit over here, why do I need to change mics? Okay. Why do I, why do I need to spend any time other than, I guess I'm going to try a different snare drum, you know, or I'm going to try a different ride cymbal. Yeah. But typically my drum kit is, I have the same kit set up for a, a batch of songs maybe. Yep. Unless I need like a very different drum sound. So if I want to get away from the vintage Gretsch, I want to go with the modern Gretsch, or I want to go with the Ludwig, right. you know, 65 kit, right. then it will be put up and stay there for a while. Okay. Very cool. <laughs> you glazed over yet? <laughs> I'm, I'm, my, my brain is spinning, you know what I mean? Because I'm just thinking about the way I do things versus the way you do things, which is obviously not that different, you know, but because you have... No, because you have the two uh, kits set up and those two options ready to go, you, you know, my, I think my changing just out of necessity is, is, is more, you know what I mean? Well, I, it helps to have 32 IO. I couldn't, I couldn't do that with 24. Yeah. I would have to reduce microphones, you know? Yeah. Um, and there's always, and there's enough channels left over in my 32 IO or open spots to run, you know, all the outboard, have that ready to go. Um, or patch in a bass or a guitar or my piano or, you know, any keys or MIDI is, is always ready to go and capture ideas. 
the majority, I mean, here I'm, I'm painting this big picture like I'm the busiest session guy. I'm not at all. I don't do that much work. Most of this is for Death Cab or the other, you know, handful of projects that, that come my way that allow me freedom and creativity in doing what I do. Yeah. I mean, do you, do you, because you, you're, this is the thing that I find tricky sometimes because my knowledge is pretty good, especially in my own room. And, and I'll paraphrase it by saying my knowledge, I feel is pretty deep in my own room. Some of that translates to, you know, quote unquote, real studios. Of course. So doesn't. But do you find yourself wanting to be a little more hands-on when you work with other people sometimes, or do you just kind of, are you able to let it go? No, it's for me. I, I, it's, it's not even a necessity. I, I feel like if I show up to work with somebody um, who is adventurous, then I will be more vocal. Right. If I, you know, I kind of read the room of the people. If I show up to work with somebody who's got a ton of experience and are pretty hands-on, then I, unless I'm asked for my opinion, I just show up to do the work, you know? So the difference between Rich Costi and Peter Cadis are, pretty huge in terms of production style um but jakir has a pretty clear vision about what he's what he wants to do but he's also loved to hear what your ideas are you know um so i and i also think historically my work with you know chris on four death cab records mm -hmm. that that we were both a part of um he was always very open he's like what do you got you know, like, what are your ideas? Or I was always open, you know, like, here's, are you cool with me putting this snare drum at your chest? Or, you know, like taking this mic and sticking it in your left ear. I was like, great, let's do it. I'll play around it. I was always open to it. But my knowledge of like, I don't, I don't ever go into a studio and look at like at someone's outboard rack and say, you know, we should try that distressor at 10 to one because that works for me. I, I let the engineer and the producer do their thing. Right. Otherwise, if they invite me in to the, the, the planning room, you know, I'm all for it. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. I love it. <laughs> um, but yeah, can't get enough of it, right? Um, it's unhealthy. I will say this about owning a studio um, is trying to strike a balance between the amount of time that I could spend in here and my family on the other side of the door <laughs> and like what's considered being having a healthy balanced life is a total tightrope walk yeah because when it's 20 feet away i mean there's advantages and disadvantages because if you need to go recall something somebody says oh dude I, that inside kick mic didn't show up you're like cool i have it to you in five minutes exactly as opposed to a 20 minute drive somewhere the other problem is that Maybe you want to go tweak that inside kick mic and it's right there. <laughs> <laughs> I know. I can't. Yeah. The, I, yeah, it's sad that uh, my wife and I have resorted to texts rather than like <laughs> walking down the stairs and we're, you know, yeah, yeah. We're, we're 20 feet apart. Back up. Oh, come on. <laughs> you know? Yeah. 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 So, and, and like you said, I, I sit down to dinner and, or I'm, or I'm making dinner, like I'm in charge of something on the grill and like, I get a text and someone's on a deadline. They're like, dude, something happened. Yeah. Your whole kit's in that drum bus. I need it solo. And you're like, give me five minutes, you know? So 
really great to have it all down here. And like I said, I've been able to do a lot of work and a lot of research and, you know, lab testing of sounds and yeah. approach. Yeah. But it's also this, this crazy curse where it feels like all dad does is lock himself in the basement. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that's a whole nother <laughs> subject, but you know, yeah, that's a whole nother subject. I'm not, I'm not going to go down that road because, because that's, that's, yeah, that's a private conversation, but yeah, I, I mean, I mean, but, music and creativity come when creativity comes when it wants to come and to strike that balance just in life in general is, uh, you know, is, 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 I think probably for everybody it's, it's tricky. And especially the position that we've all just been put in with COVID where you're depending on making a living, but it's also a creative outlet and a necessity for, for a lot of us, right. Just spiritually, uh, just, and just wanting to do it, you know, it's a tricky balance um, yeah. of life. And, you know, I think artists and, and musicians have always run into that. A lot of it's been, I mean, here's the good thing about it is we, we bit, we both can turn it off and go inside and and make the choice to turn it off whereas if you're sleeping in a hotel room yeah that's where you are yeah yeah, yeah. well i you know it's funny I've, I've been here we've been in this house for 11 years and it's taken me 10 to figure out how to use this studio yeah <laughs> yep um and i i mean that like in in like a metal way as much as like the microscopic way like it's taken me a long time to realize that that ribbon needs to be right there you know or that the boiler room is pure magic with right. a gate um or whatever like gear and and sonic choices aside to be able to know when to come in here and when not to come in here yep uh, in regards to my my mental state my family like all things so like you said part of that is a is another sidebar private conversation but i will say that i think historically studios like like in the book temples of sound that magic places where magic is made um they don't i don't think they have they have this instant reveal i think that all of us need to really spend time just like with our own instrument like really listening closely and experimenting in order to determine the ways to best use that space our time our environment and all things so like maybe that that daylight coming in behind you was was like something that took you five years to figure out in terms of like being in the right headspace at the right time but having everything ready to go this is my advice sort of closing advice for all you know budding engineers or you know recording enthusiasts is the more obstacles you can remove quicker you're going to get more inspired performances so me being able to walk into a room and sit down and go you're recording great if i have to spend a bunch of time and i've seen this with other engineers when you go to a studio and like how does this shit work and trying to find where the patch bay is all that the more you <laughs> you got to wait for the bus or the plane or whatever to take off the more it kills inspiration so having a space whether it's tiny or large or one mic or 40 mics, whatever gets you recording and committing your inspiration immediately is the place you need to be. That's where everybody should get to. 
and that's all she wrote. <laughs> yeah. And <laughs> Q Keplinger. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, thanks, dude. It's uh, nice to talk to you on a personal level, and also thank you for your time. Of course, man. Uh, I, I miss you. Hope to hope to be down in LA sometime again soon.